0: It's time to buckle up your seatbelts and let's get this ball rolling. Welcome back, everyone. If you're in Australia, I hope that you are snuggled up somewhere with your Ugg boots on, wrapped up in a doona. I was actually on a coaching call this morning and there were loads of people zooming in from around the world and some were in shorts and singlets. And I was like, oh my God, I'm so envious of the warm weather. I had a blanket over my lap. I had a big jacket on. Before we begin today, I wanted to chat to you about podcasting in general. This is a growing industry, yet no one really talks about what the listeners may experience when they press play on an episode. I know for many of you, Challenges That change Us was the first podcast you listened to. And the wonderful thing about podcasting is that it can cover so many topics and you can hear from so many interesting people. It's important to know that you might have a different reaction to each episode. Some might feel like I'm talking directly to you, like we're having a cup of tea in the lounge room, sitting on the couch, having a chat. Other episodes might be an interesting story to you and you might gain some strategies that you could implement into your life. Whereas some interviews you hear, you might actually have an emotional reaction to, even to the point that that reaction surprises you. This is normal. If you hear anything on this podcast that you think, oh, that's kind of not how it is for me, or there's another side to that story, please DM through a topic or a guest you'd like me to interview. As humans, we all experience life differently. We have different set of values, core beliefs, experiences, skills, education, and what's right for one person might seem completely ridiculous to the next person. When I interview people at Challenges That Change Us, I invite them to tell their story from their eyes, from their experience, knowing that it will resonate with some people and not with others. I want to cover a range of topics and conversations and life experiences. So please, if you know someone or something that we could cover, just shoot me through a DM. Today's episode, we cover topics that we've not really discussed to date. I'd like to introduce you to Rachel Horton, current principal at the Armadao School. In this episode, Rachel and I discuss her incredibly diverse life post-schooling. She spent time in Iraq as a reservist. She was the first woman to referee premier grade rugby in Brisbane, getting capped at reffing international rugby, and she completed a 100K run last year, just to name a few of her experiences. We also spent some time throughout this podcast discussing overcoming nerves and working with the perfectionistic mindset, how Rachel manages her high expectations of herself and high expectations of others. I really enjoyed this conversation. and I think you will too. Make sure you pop your feedback into our Facebook group, Challenges That Change Us. It's great if you pop in something that you took away from the episode or something you would love to know more about. Anyway, time for the show. So I'd like to welcome Rachel Horton to the show. Thank
1: you for coming. Hi, Ali. I'm excited to be here. Slightly nervous, but really excited. (laughs) I still get nervous. Do you know that? I always have to go and do a nervous
0: wee before every interview. I don't think I've had one yet that I haven't done that. And I think when will
1: those nerves go away? But is this your first podcast? I Look, I've done one before, but I think I'm still really new to anything in terms of not that this is live, sort of done a couple of radio interviews and bits and pieces. So I'm still really new in any kind of interviewing sort of space, even though I feel really comfortable with you and I'm really excited to talk to you. (laughs) Yeah, still get the nerves.
0: It feels live though, because we've yeah. got these uh, like screens on and headphones yeah. and it does. And I remember doing my first podcast. That was definitely, I felt that like nervous energy that I feel when I get on stage mm-hmm. as well. It, Even though you know, it's not live, it almost feels mm-hmm. it. Um, so I really love to start our podcast with a little get to know you icebreaker mm-hmm. question. And that is, if you were to use an animal to describe you, what animal would that be and why?
1: <laughs> so... Obviously, I knew you were going to ask this one, Ali, because I've heard your your podcast. And I've been thinking about it for weeks. And I hate not being able to come up with an answer. So I did an online quiz to see what kind of animal I would be. And it was inconclusive. So, um, oh, <laughs> didn't help. I, what, what quiz What quiz did you find? I just googled one, and I, I mean, it might give you an indication of how good the quiz was. But the last question was, <laughs> what, what Disney princess did you relate to the most? So, anyway, is that where you came unstuck? <laughs> well, yeah, might have been, might have been. But apparently, <laughs> I'm a combination of a bear, a cat, a wolf, and a little bit of a mouse. <sighs> But yeah, I don't know. A bear is a love of eating. A wolf is, apparently, I like having lots of friends, but I can turn a little bit antisocial and slightly aggressive at a moment's notice, which might be a bit much, but I, I do have my <laughs> I do have my moments. Oh, the cat is sort of, you know, very friendly, but also can be aloof at times, as we know cats can be. But uh, yeah, so I don't know. What about the mouse? What uh, was the mouse part? I think the mouse was that sort of quiet, reserved hiding away sort of parts. And I definitely have those times where I'm like, especially with my job and all sorts of things, just sort of on and talking to people a lot of the time. So I really do like my alone time sometimes. I should send you, have you done your disc profile? Have you ever I, done any of I, it? I have done that and I've done. Oh, cause yeah. I was thinking I should send that to you and see
0: where you fit. You're probably smack bang in the middle where you can like kind of shoot off into any of the directions. I, do you remember where you sat? Oh,
1: I can't remember, but I've, I've actually got a different kind of profile that I did recently. Uh, Hogan score or something that I did recently. Yeah. And I and again that it's all fascinating, but I also think I do sort of modulate the part of me that I am at any one time. So and it's not yeah. being inauthentic, I think it's just you are different people in different scenarios. And I think that's me. I think it's all of us.
0: I think it's also the art of a leader is being able to what kind of, I always talk about what jumper are you going to put in for what conversation, you know? So sometimes they need you to be a little bit more sit back, listen, hold space versus really in and giving direction and telling people exactly what needs to happen next. So I think it's, it's actually a sign of a great leader when you can kind of morph to the situation that's in front of you. Yep. And hope you pick the right one at that time. (laughs) (laughs) God, I get it wrong more than I get it right. (laughs)
1: Yeah.
0: And the other question that I love to ask is, did you have a favorite place
1: or a favorite room when you were growing up? Yes, I probably had a couple and I had, look, I loved my bedroom at home and I had a huge room, which sort of used to be for one of the helpers on the farm. I grew up with them. horses and in a big farmhouse. So I had sort of a sink and a, a walk-in wardrobe. It sounds very glamorous, but it was sort of or, mm. orange and black seventies carpet. It wasn't glamorous. But so I loved my bedroom because it was really my space. But if I think about my favorite place to go when I was younger, my grandparents had a farm, which by fields was about sort of half a, half an hour's walk or in the car. It was a couple of minutes if we went round And a lot of my sort of family members lived in the area and my grandparents had sheep and cattle and they had one dairy cow called Daisy. I suspect it was actually many over the years and I just assumed it was always Daisy. (laughs) But so they would have milk for all different sort of parts of the family to collect every morning and at nine o'clock everyone would turn up for their sort of fresh milk and anyone who could stay would go through into my grandparents' kitchen, and my granny would make coffee and have biscuits, and we would play pick up sticks or card games, and everyone would just sit around the table. And my grandpa might be doing the crossword or something like that. So obviously, when I was at school, we just sort of would do that on the weekend. But in the holidays, we might be around there most days of the week, every morning. And it was just a really, really lovely. It's you know sort of one of my main sort of childhood memories and just a really nice thing to do every day to sort of see which of your cousins or your great aunt might be around and your grandparents and, and play some games and have a, a coffee and a piece of flapjack or whatever granny had made, I guess. Yeah, it's good. Because where did you grow up? So I grew up in a little village called Nightwick in England. So it's about 10 miles out of Worcester. So it's in the Midlands. When you said all of that, I'm still trying to work out where that is. Sorry, I haven't haven't kind of marked anywhere. Go to England. Imagine imagine the bump that is Wales and sort of go, it's sort of towards, in England, but towards the bottom of Wales. And, yeah, Worcester is a beautiful city with a beautiful cathedral, race course, cricket ground, and we lived in this, yeah, a tiny little village, literally a church, a chapel, a butcher's and a pub every every village needs a pub, of course. And my yeah my grandparents farmed there. And so we grew up in one of the farmhouses on, um, on the extended farm, I guess. And did you say you had a sink in your bedroom? I did. Yeah. I don't think I've ever seen that. Is that an English thing? It was, I think, so my bedroom was over at one end of the house over the tack room. And I actually had external stairs as well. So I think it was more sort of for, uh, We never had anyone working as a groom for the horses, but if there was someone working on the farm or working with the horses, it was almost like a self-contained granny flat. Mm. No toilet, just a sink. There was actually, I did have an electric cooker in there as well, but I just sort of stacked things on it. It was was very random. Yeah, a bit like a half-hearted granny flat, but I enjoyed it. So, and when you say horses, I know we've got a lot to talk about today, so I'm gonna, <laughs> <laughs> I am curious. When you say horses, did you breed horses? We did. We did. My mum went to catering college and my dad was a mechanic, but when I was quite young, they both went into the business of breeding racehorses. So we had a couple of stallions and then people would send their mares and we always had, yeah, horses around national hunts. so not flat, so over the jumps. And we always had horses around, which was really great because if you've, Horses are expensive, but if it's your business, it doesn't cost much more to have a couple of ponies or another horse for mm. the children of the family. So I didn't appreciate it as much growing up as I should have probably. But we grew up and I always had horses, and you know, we were in the pony club and then we invented and, and competed, and
0: yeah, it was great. Loved it. I think. Been- Wanting we've got a hundred acres and three girls, and so it's i don't know how we've gotten to our eldest is twelve i don't know how we've made it this far without horses, but my husband's allergic, so I grew up with horses my whole life and did camp drafting and um every year that goes past, I think, oh, it, it will be next year, it will be next year. But we still, the girls wish for one, but they haven't really pushed, push, push for it. But as a teenager, it's so good to have horses, you know, like, especially when things happen at school or you're fighting with your friends, you know, they just, the horses give so much love back. Mm-hmm. It can sometimes feel like you have a whole different friendship group. I don't know if that was your experience, but it was definitely mine growing up with horses.
1: Yeah, I definitely, you know, I'd get home, I'd always have to do my homework, but I'd get home from school and I'd chuck like a- we used to call them a boiler suit, but an all-in-one, just straight over uniform and go out with the horses and then do whatever, go for a ride or do something and then come back and finish our homework after that. And a a different social circle of my friends involved with horses as well, definitely. And that was my
0: experience, you know, just a whole nother set of friends that you could fall back on or play with or, you know, keep you busy during holidays. Yeah. Yeah. And, Rachel, you have many chapters to your life. I'd almost say many lives and I'm sure there's going to be many more chapters to come and we're going to unpack a few of them today. So I thought maybe a great place to start with this
1: would be post-school. Okay. So I went to university in Bristol. I did pathology and microbiology as a degree and while I was at school, while I was at school, while I was at university, I started playing rugby. I hadn't been able to do it when I was at school. I went to an all girls school and it just wasn't something that was offered. So it was something I loved, but I saw my younger brother playing or I saw it on television. So university was fabulous. I loved my degree, but I also started playing rugby, which I loved. And I also joined it's the officer training corps, which is sort of, we don't have the equivalent in Australia. It's like a university version of the Reserved Armed Forces. So it Mm. is you're a reservist, but you're at university. And the purpose of that, because we don't have ADFA in England, people who are on a cadetship or a bursary are sponsored to go to university and join the officer training corps, but also other people can. So it's like a a mid-level between cadets at school and and being an actual reservist. So I joined that at university and actually – while well, I really enjoyed it at university, I sort of transitioned into a normal reserve unit. So I was an army reservist during my time at university as well. I'm packing a lot of stuff in already. Sorry, Callie. <laughs> yeah. No, that's okay. <laughs> We're
0: going high level first and then I'm gonna like dig deep into some areas. So no, absolutely, just a bit of an overview, yeah. But
1: yeah, so I was really I loved I loved my degree, I loved sort of spending a bit of time running around with with the army on the weekends and a couple of evenings and obviously playing rugby. And then after I finished my degree, I really thought I would be a go do your few years at university and go and get a job, but I really loved it. So I stayed in research and got sponsored to do a PhD. I was working in microbiology and infectious diseases. So that was sponsored by the public health laboratory at the time, looking at a vaccine for meningitis, one of the sero groups that there wasn't a vaccine for, and there is now, which is fabulous. So I sort of stayed on, I carried on playing rugby, carried on in the reserves.
0: When you say playing rugby, because now women's rugby in Australia is just mm. starting to get momentum. Mm. It feels like it's almost plateauing. I, we had an amazing guest on earlier in the season, um, Grace Hamilton, who was the captain of the Wallaroos, and we had a great discussion around women's rugby. So overseas, was it a little more popular? Like, Is it something that lots of women did or like I was surprised um,
1: to hear you say that you were playing rugby. Yeah, I, not as popular as it is now here in Australia. I, again, it's had growth in England and the game has transformed. But yeah, when I was playing, I didn't realise there was much women's rugby when I was at school. Otherwise, I could have probably played outside school in a, in a club. But at university, yes, there was a bit around, but the opportunities and the pathways weren't really clear. We also we used to play on a Sunday afternoon, which is fine. But I just I have these memories of we never played on the first pit, the first team pitch with our club. The men's would always play on the first team pitch, and we would always play on the back one. Or there was this one way over the back with these potholes, and we used to call it Little Twickenham because it was so far from Twickenham, it was untrue. But we couldn't even run across the first team pitch to get to our pitch out the back. Oh. And i know I know that it's changed, and I think so I think rugby for women, actually women's sports in general have just seen this massive growth and elevation in status, and money money is so important, and that is starting yeah. to go into them, and that's that's changed it, but you know, I still loved it, I absolutely love it, and my the girls I played with are still some of my even though I don't see them because I'm overseas are some of my mm. absolutely dearest and and closest friends and always on my list to visit if I go back home and some of my funniest and best memories from from playing with them from which playing. is great. Yeah. And is that what led you into refing? I think eventually because we haven't gone there yet but I ended up going to Canada and then moving to Australia and when I and I played rugby everywhere and by the time I got to Australia I was sort of changed teams and things aren't quite the same as you know those great mates you played with before so I was looking I was just kind of over the team sport, but I loved rugby still. And I thought, oh, I don't really want to coach because coaching frustrates me, although I became a teacher. so I was about to say...
0: (laughs) coaching teaching and I'm a referee coach now so but you know it is different coaching again that you love though I think that there is an element of you know because I love netball but I I often wonder could I actually coach it whereas I could be a teacher
1: (laughs) I know it's so it's so weird so my thought process was okay well I'll start refereeing and I'll probably hate it but I should at least have a go before I say I hate it and I quite enjoyed it. And then, I don't know, one thing led to the other. I never felt that I wasn't part of that rugby community anymore. I've always felt part of a group, part of a team, even if you're sort of that one referee in the middle and you're turning up on your own to a game on a weekend, or you could be with a team of three or a team of five, depending on what game you're going to. But I've always still felt very much part of the rugby community. And And I just love that. And I still get to run around in the middle of the the field, even though I'm not playing, I'm still very much part of the game and it's great. And what were some of the highlights that you had from your refing days? I think I was incredibly fortunate to find perhaps be in the right place at the right time and find people who supported me and presumably to do a reasonable job as well. And I was lucky enough to do a couple of international women's games. I travelled, actually I've travelled quite a a lot with refereeing, which is wonderful, but I refereed over in England and and refereed Italy Ireland was probably one of my highlights in Italy. A few years ago now, I'm trying to think (laughs) what year, 2017. That was a huge highlight for me going and and also getting sort of my cap for Australia and being a, a capped referee but very much alongside that, I was refereeing in Brisbane at the time and I wasn't expecting it, but I got appointed to referee premier grade in Brisbane. And I was the first woman to referee premier grade rugby in Brisbane, which was actually I, like, it was a big deal for me. It's huge. Surprised me what a huge deal it was for the the press as well at the time. And and I was—I oh, was so nervous. I, was, yes. I got to the game. So about much it. pressure. I <laughs> know. <no. laughs> so that was fabulous. It's a funny thing because I'm really proud that I was the first woman, but I'm also on the flip side of that, I really wish that we didn't have to be proud that I, there's a first for women. Do you yes. know what I mean? So it's, yes.
0: it's like in, yeah. in a
1: sport that there were
0: women already playing and you know, yeah. it's an established sport. Yeah. You have been one of the first women in lots of things that we've already heard. It sounds like, like there wouldn't have been that many women playing rugby and then with refereeing. And I'm sure when we start to talk about mm. Iraq, yeah. I imagine that as well. Yeah. I wanted to ask though, before we move on to that around the nervousness, because I think this would be really
1: valuable to our listeners. We've mentioned it twice already. Mm -hmm. How do you manage your nerves? Yeah, I do get super nervous. And I, I guess I just have a lot of processes in place. And so I plan and I have my timings written down for whatever it is. And I'll, if I'm if I'm speaking, perhaps I'll plan out what I'm going to say or I'll plan what I'm going to wear for rugby. I'll plan what I'm going to wear as, you know, you have your bag packed, you sort of have, have a game plan. If I'm at rugby, I'll have spoken to my assistant referees or my coach beforehand. So it's every bit of that I think is around planning as best I can. And Whatever the event is that I'm nervous for, you'll be able to tell how nervous I am because I get there even earlier. But the, the more nervous I am, the earlier I'll be there. And yeah, and you'll probably I'll be a little you know visibly nervous as soon as things start. I'm fine, but so. is that why
0: you were on at nine o'clock this morning? <laughs> when I <died>?
1: <laughs> <laughs> and that was just when you realised I was on, Ali. <laughs> so
0: um. I think that's a very valid point, though. Is that preparation? But I heard a couple of things. It was not just physical preparation. There was environment prep yep. and mental prep. Yep. You know, getting yep. dressed and having your clothes out. That's one of the things that we talk about. Someone asked me the other day how do I flip between all my businesses? Mm. I actually change my clothes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So I will wear my corporates if I'm working in tri attitude or I'll wear my yeah. gym gear if I'm working now, if I actually yeah. have yoga
1: gear for when I walk into the studio. So that's just part of that prep piece yeah. that we're talking about. Yeah. And I look, and the other thing, I'm not superstitious, but now i 'm going to tell you something that sounds like I'm superstitious. But for, for most things I have something that'll be my favorite or my lucky or something you know I in rugby it might be my lucky sports bra or if I'm speaking or I've got a big day at work now, I have a beautiful piece of jewelry that was given to me was designed and made and given to me by a beautiful group of students a few years ago, and I will wear that, and that will remind me of how much they thought of me, and that's pretty special, so that kind of helps or, you know, just that mm. extra little bit. And, you know, so it's, I have little rituals or pieces and bits and pieces for different scenarios that just make me feel comfortable or, or add a little level of comfort, I think.
0: And that might even play into state-dependent learning. You know, it's like when you do it enough, there's a comfort just in having that familiar. I can't even say the word familiarity. (laughs) I can't get the word out. And that's, you know, for the listeners out there, if you haven't got these little rituals, that can make a really big difference. One of the ones that I use is when I walk through the door. So the door frame, I physically imagine like having a shift, you know, and it's like once I walk in there, you know, how do you keep your work, life separate from your private life or at the moment like this week we've had a huge week and to have to be able to walk through those doors at the gym and show up and be completely present for other people I walk through that door frame and I think "Uh aha now I'm on you know as I'm walking up to the door frame it can be all personal and then I walk through I'm like right I'm in and I'm on so Mm. these little rituals can make a really big difference and the more you practice them the easier they become but the bigger impact they have I guess
1: yeah absolutely absolutely
0: I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you are and you'd like to learn more or engage further with our podcast community, you can do this in our Facebook group. Just search for Challenges That Change Us on Facebook or look in the link in our show notes. In this group, we'll be sharing extra content and giving further background to our episodes. So I hope to see you there. But for now, let's get back to the episode. I wanted to ask you about Iraq. I've got mm-hmm. loads of questions. It's quite foreign to me. Yeah. So I actually asked before we got on whether there was some right language around it because I didn't even know that and I'm sure other people are the same. So maybe if we start at the beginning around, well, you talked about the reserves at mm-hmm. Union. Yep how did it go from
1: that to being over to Iraq? Yeah. Okay. And I should say it's foreign to so many people and it's, it's a weird sort of special world that unless you're part of it, you don't, you don't know it at all. So mm. I was in the reserves at, at university, which again, it's just evenings and the odd weekend and a couple of weeks a year. And it was at the beginning of 2003 when everything started happening in, in Iraq and it became apparent that the British Army was going to lean heavily on the reserve forces because they downgraded, you know, there were less full-time military personnel than they required for that size of a conflict. So we sort of knew that people were getting mobilized and and there was this number that you could call and you can give them your army number and say, am I on the list? And and that you might get warnings that you were going to get an envelope anyway. So I was in the engineers in the in the reserves and the engineers were being mobilized pretty strongly. So really what happened is one day in about, I think it was about April, May of 2003, I got a big brown envelope through the mail and it has a, a load of documentation in it. But the short version is that it says you're required to report to this place on this date, otherwise you'll be listed as AWOL and you're getting mobilized essentially to become a full-time military person for an amount of time and to do an operational tour of Iraq. So it was, it's compulsory. When you get that envelope, then it becomes all of a sudden it ticks over to Mm -hmm. compulsory. You don't get a say in that? You can appeal. Okay. And there are, so there are, there were a couple of reasons that would almost be a given. If you're a full-time student and you appealed, they would let you stay and mm-hmm. I was because I was doing my PhD. There's a letter in there for your employer as well. And I went to my supervisor and I spoke to him and he said, Of course I'm going to let you go, Rachel, because you'd never forgive me if I if I didn't. Yeah. So that was that. And and if you had, maybe if you were a small business owner or those kind of things, you could appeal. But if mm-hmm. you had a particularly niche skill set that they really wanted, some people did appeal and and it didn't get carried. So pretty compulsory at that stage yes the question that's coming
0: up and I can't believe I'm <laughs> gonna ask this but what if you don't open your mailbox like oh. what if you're away or
1: a <laughs> question I, 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 know? I mean I don't know I would imagine I they chase you down and I don't know how much effort they I don't know I don't yeah, know <laughs> like a letter seems so it's old, old school, school. Yeah. yeah yeah
0: old old school you know because mobile phones and text messages and everything would have been like
1: do you know what I mean yeah yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. I think it's just, I mean, the army is in many, it's high tech, but it is also really old school in in many ways as well. And were people worried about you going? Like how did your family and friends respond to you saying that you were going to go? I think they were all okay. I, I know they, of course, they were nervous for me, but I think they also understood that while... It is a big thing. It is a dangerous thing, and, and you are going to be nervous. I think they understood that it was really important to me that I joined the reserves because we were reserves, which was, it did mean that when I made that commitment, I was saying, if you need me, I, w- I will be here. I'll be available. So I think they understood the sort of, yeah, the responsibility that came with that. I remember telling the rugby girls because they'd just asked me if I'd be captain for the next year. And then I was like, oh, I'd love to be, but I'm going to Iraq. So (laughs) not, not your everyday conversation.
0: (laughs) And what was the experience like? You know,
1: what was it, what you imagined? No. And so I should say between getting that letter, you turn up, you have to go through some extra medicals and bits and pieces and you go through and you obviously get an an extra bit of kit. And we did a couple of months of some extra sort of training depending on what you were going into. So you do get a bit of a lead up to it. And then I, I really don't know. I don't think however many times people try to explain what it'll be like. I don't think I knew what to expect when I got there. So really, and I didn't actually know what role I was going into. So I just got on a military flight and hoped that someone would be there to meet me at the airport in Basra at the other end. And we flew in, all the flights were coming in at night at that time. So you sort of uh, land in Basra with your kit. It is a military airport. It's just military people around. And then luckily people were there to collect me. They didn't really know. They took me back to sort of a the camp and we were all in tents, big tents at the time. So they just sort of gave me an area to have a couple of hours lie down before the morning when someone would speak to me and sort of tell me what my job was, I guess, and mm-hmm. and show me around. And
0: when you say you didn't know what you were going for, did you have a theme or an area I mean, that you
1: knew like I, you're going for engineering? I knew I was going to be in the engineers and I, you know, and I knew what sort of and there's one British engineer regiment out there, so I knew that I'd be with them in Basra. I just didn't know what role I would be playing within within that out there. and And I also, I knew what the engineers were doing. It was fairly early on in the conflict. So mostly what the engineers were doing was what we would call force protection, which is what it sounds like. You're sort of building up protection for the British army that were out there. So it's not the sort of beautiful, we're building a hospital for the locals and things. We were very much sort of protecting, building up defences for ourselves or those sorts of things. When you say building up forces, what literally are you building? A lot of it on a very basic level is is sandbags full of sand and building up walls of those or big concrete barriers. You might be putting in chicanes for the entrances to camps to slow down vehicles so bluntly, so that if you have a vehicle, a VBIED, a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device. Someone can't just drive their car straight into your camp. They're going to mm. get caught by that chicane and at least slow down or get caught further out. So, really basic level but effective defenses of, of that that kind. That was a lot of what we're doing. How long were you there? Six months. So yeah. I went out in the June. Towards the end of the June, I was there for Christmas, and I came back in the the January of two thousand and four. And what were some of your most memorable moments? Christmas. yeah I'll go to the fun ones first because yeah yeah that's why I kept it so open because I also don't know what I'm allowed to ask right Uh, yeah
0: like you know it's and I also don't know what to ask because it's an experience I'm not familiar with
1: it's it's bizarre it's like well I'll talk I'll talk about Christmas because I because I said that but Christmas when you're out in in Iraq you're sort of with you know everyone's away from their families we were dry so there's no alcohol so you're not celebrating with alcohol but I don't know. We had like a little service in the morning on Christmas Day. We didn't do any tasks. So there was relaxation. We'd got these boxes. People in back in the UK had been sending out care packages. So you did have some like treats. And one of the supermarkets had sent every soldier a box of treats. So mince pies and other things. And I love mince pies and a lot of people don't. So a lot of people gave me their mince pies as well, <laughs> which is great. Right. Really?
0: So lucky you had all the sandbagging <laughs> after Christmas
1: night. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: Do you still eat mince pies, by the way? Do you still eat them now after that? Because, you know, sometimes when (laughs) that's your experience and you've had so
1: many, it's like, oh, never again. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love a mince pie. So there was nothing sort of super special about Christmas other than the just sort of the feeling. We did have a Christmas lunch of kinds put on by the, the chefs. Army chefs are amazing. They can turn anything into this amazing feast. But I think it was just a an extra sense of a different family at Christmas being somewhere different I actually think for us the timing was good because we were most of the people I was with were going home in January as well so it was at the end of our tour which probably added to that
0: and you wouldn't get that time very often where everyone's relaxed Mm. so that that gives you an opportunity to laugh and with no pressure and you don't have to go somewhere and be somewhere Mm -mm. so I think that that just that simple change in that Mm. pressure and not having to do tasks can can have a huge impact on a day
1: yeah definitely definitely I also Mm. um I have to say this one as well but Australians won't love this one but I was out there for the 2003 World Cup when Johnny Wilkinson kicked the drop goal to (laughs) <laughs> in, the, in the final yes so we did I mean there's not much going on in a, a big you know we're in tents and we're in a camp in in Iraq but what we did have was satellite tv most of the time as long as there wasn't something serious going on in which case there would be a complete comms blackout but so we had a big tv in a big tent and so I got to watch watch the the rugby there. I think I was the only English person. I was with a Welsh reg- regiment by that time, and and they went out in the quarters, I think. So um, I was excited anyway. <laughs> yeah. So you were the only
0: English in the uh, in the
1: engineering camp, was it? In where I was with the squadron, I was with at that stage. Yeah. They were they were Welsh. I think we actually had a a small troop from New Zealand who were co-located with us as well. So they were very unimpressed in the semifinals. But, yeah, um, <laughs> but that's how naive I am. I would have thought that you went over with your troop and you are with everyone you knew. No, so to start with, I was actually in two different locations when I went out there and actually by this time I, I was. When I went out for the first three months, I was with the headquarter squadron of the regular army unit regiment that was out there and I got posted in on my own. So I didn't know anyone who was on that Um, who was there at all. Is that like lonely? Mm. Look, it it was to start with because the other thing is, so squadron, mm, let's say there's about 130 people, give or take, on that one campsite in that location and there were not very many women. There was a chef who was a woman and there was a signaller who was a woman, sorry, and there was also a girl who worked in the stores. So I was the only engineer who was a woman there. I was also the only officer And so there's a a sort of odds. I just felt like I couldn't, I'm fine. I love hanging out with the guys. I've got no problem with that. But sometimes you just sort of, I don't know, want some girl talk or or something. And they did this really lovely thing when I'd been there for a week or two. And one of them came over to me, to my tent and said, if you want to hang out with us, come and hang out with us. And cuz you're not going anywhere when you're not working, there's a lot of downtime or you're always yeah. working, essentially you're always on call. And that was really lovely cuz I felt as an officer I couldn't impose myself on them, but the fact that they invited me, so I would go and sit and I don't know what we'd talk about, but um, you know, that that was nice. So that made a real difference to me. And when
0: you look back on that experience, what would you say was your greatest challenge during that time?
1: I think And I don't know in hindsight if it was my biggest challenge or I felt it was my biggest challenge. And I felt it was my biggest challenge that I was going out there, A, as a woman when there were so few women in the engineers, and B, as a reservist, so not a regular full time soldier. I thought and I felt that I had to work harder to sort of get respect and to prove myself being posted in. But in hindsight, I think anyone would have had to work that hard and I think you do have to work hard to earn respect and to 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 sort of um when you come in but I didn't realize till I left that not one of them apart from the officer commanding had known I was a reservist they just assumed I got posted in from another regular regiment and I actually don't think any of them cared that I was a woman you know it was mm. When
0: you say you had to work harder do you what do you mean by that I just felt I had to be better <laughs> Like not necessarily working longer hours, you no. mean like you just had to give
1: 100% all the time or, or get everything right yes. or what do you mean? Yes, yes, I, yeah, I do. Uh, I mean longer hours, you you just, no, that was impossible anyway. So, yeah, I think it, I felt that I needed to get everything everything right and I didn't have room for error. In fairness, I probably put that pressure on myself in a lot of my life anyway. So I was about to ask
0: that. I was like, is this solo to (laughs) Iraq? I feel like some of your achievements come from a place of drive and a place of always trying to go and strive for the next thing. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And if I commit to anything, I really want to do the best I can at it. So that is a personal pressure I put on myself. Yeah, definitely.
0: Yeah. How do you manage that? Because my middle child at the moment is showing, mm. and I don't know if you would name this as perfectionism, but she's showing signs of perfectionism. And I know I'm a really high achiever. <laughs> I own three companies and a podcast, you know, like <laughs> I love and strive in that space, but I don't think things to be perfect. But my daughter is striving for that. And as a parent, I'm like, oh, how, what do we do with that? You know, my background's in psych, but I'm too close to it. so. I guess my question is how did you manage it for you and is it something that has held you back at times or is it always been one of your strongest characteristics that is always uh, resourceful for you? Mm.
1: I think if you ask me to choose do I want to be this person, I still want to be, have that drive and Mm. that desire. Although there are definitely days where I look at people, I, I see people driving home and I think and I make up stories about them, and I'm like, oh, they're just driving home to sort of watch a bit of TV and cook dinner. And but I'm thinking I'm going to do this. And I wish I was just a bit more easygoing on myself. But but I'm happy with that. But it does, and I think that's what contributes to the nerves. But I guess I still have to manage it. And there's a lot of self talk, and it's trying to change, stop looking for perfection and change my wording from not looking for perfect, excellent. Excellent is still really good. It's great. Mm. No one's going to get perfection, but you can be excellent. So it's, there's a lot of changing my language. In fairness, I got that from talking. I, I worked with a sports psych through rugby refereeing for a couple of years, and that was a, a lot of the conversations we had were around changing perfection to, to excellence, and we also had conversations about what's the worst that can happen and, you know, those sorts yes. of things. Yes, yes.
0: It's your superpower though, right? And I love that you say that because that's one of the things that I really love about my life is that I do all this crazy stuff, right? Mm. Like I love nothing better and you will understand this mm. than doing a half marathon before 7am. Mm-hmm. You know, everyone else hasn't got out of bed yet and I've already run 21 Ks, you know? So it does, it throws us into a space that is exciting and there's challenge all the time, yep. but
1: I'm very curious as to how to manage that space. I still am working towards that balance. So I think it's just continually checking yourself. And I do have ridiculously high expectations of myself. And that does, you know, that can be less than constructive at times, but Mm. it's constructive more often than not. And it is me. It's not changing. So it's just working towards managing that better Mm. and, and taking all the good that comes with that
0: and it's kind of like that bell curve right it's if there's not enough stimulus mm. you won't be brilliant and then there's a middle ground that's where it, you really excel and then sometimes it just tips over the edge so I guess it's having that awareness of when it's not serving you anymore yeah. do you have high expectations of others yes yes yeah no yeah. I just asked because I do and I was like oh, I wonder if you do and how do you manage that
1: <laughs> I well when your expectations of others are too high it can grate on them obviously um and you can I have moments where I'm like oh I Asked a bit too much there, but so again it's checking, but it's reminding myself that just because my expectations of myself are really high, not everyone's are there. So it's about having high expectations, but trying to temper that and them not be too high. I'm pretty clear Mm -hmm. with my team, and if any of them listen to this now, they know that I've quite I've confessed to them that I have incredibly high expectations of myself, and I understand that I have that of them, and you know, sometimes that Flips a bit too far in one direction, so they they know that about me, and I know that about me. So hopefully we can work with that. And um,
0: yeah, yeah, my team call me out on it too. <laughs> They're like,
1: that is really unrealistic, and I have
0: to be like, oh, is it? Like in my head, I'm like, are you sure that's unrealistic? <laughs> and how has have you taken some lessons from Iraq
1: into your role as principal at the Taz School? Ah, I don't know if if, I, if I've ever thought about bringing them over. I mean, I guess my general biggest or one of my biggest lessons were that was my first like really in at the deep end as a leader like you're in charge there's lots at stake this isn't leading your rugby team or or whatever this is this is different and it was very sink or swim so I learned very quickly that you've got to be very honest with people you've got to own your mistakes (laughs) And that no one minds if you, I mean, probably if you're making them all the time, they would. But if you if you make a mistake and you own that and take responsibility, people have a lot more respect for you than if you try and sort of fob it off and blame it on someone else. So to be open and honest about things, to be clear about why we're doing things, people like to know the why, even if you're telling them. In the army, there's a lot of telling rather than you're not mm. consultative. But if they understand what and why. and I guess being yourself, just being pretty authentic, not sort of trying to put yourself off as off as someone else, people will see value in that and and like you for who you are and what you are and the way you conduct your business. I think
0: that's a lesson I'm still trying to learn, even with the podcast. You know, mm. like to be purely authentic and to be okay with the ums and ahs and the buts and the questions that you ask. that may not have been the way you want to ask them, or I think you know it's something that you need to work on every day mm. of your life to be really authentic and to be non-judgmental of yourself. And I I love when you can say in the environment of Iraq that it's like, own your mistakes. Mm. Because if you can do it there, then we can do it everywhere.
1: Yes. Yes. And I was also lucky. I think in some decisions, genuinely luck came into it because you have to make some very quick decisions. I was very fortunate that I did not make any bad decisions that led to really catastrophic events. You know, my missteps were pretty low level and I I consider myself very fortunate because there are a lot of unknowns and there are some really difficult, difficult decisions and instant decisions. And they do sit with you. It's your decision. So, and there were lots of bad things that went on. So yeah, I was lucky.
0: And was it a really emotional time or was it very just get in, get the task done? Because that's something I often wonder about. I would imagine there would be so much fear, so much anxiety, so much highs and lows, mm. you know, like I imagine
1: it's really turbulent, but there's not a lot of room for turbulence when you're out there. Yeah. Do you know, it's interesting that you asked that because I think it turned me into a pretty unemotional person for a bit of a, a bit of time because you get very... A really thick skin because things that mm. should be scary or should, you, you can't be scared of everything. You can't be scared of the gunfire going off or another bomb's come off here or there. You, you just don't have the capacity to do that and still do your job. So you, you make jokes about things that really aren't funny if they were happening here mm. and you just develop this quite sort of, It's not inappropriate in an offensive style of of sense of humor, but it's you're joking about things that are far more serious about things than you should, you should, you shouldn't be joking about them, but it's the way you sort of deal with it. And then when I came back from Iraq, that sort of you've been living in that for six months, and it sort of continues on a little bit. And I was back in the lab and I was working with people, and I made one of my co-workers cry one day, and I felt so terrible but it was because my sense of humor had become so abrasive and just and it took that for me to realize that and to sort of dial it back down and and come back to the person I was so yeah it's it's an interesting question to ask because you do you do build up these walls and you do change to deal with the level of things that are going on on a day-to-day basis
0: and you can't unwrite six months in a week no. You know, it's taken you six months to build that mm. kind of tough resilience grit. You don't undo that just because you've come home. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, mm. and I had a much easier ride out. Oh, you know, there were some rubbish things that happened and it wasn't a pleasant time, but I know that, I, you know, I had a much better time out there than, than a lot of people and a lot of people who've been in other sort of um, theatres as well. So, so that's, yeah.
0: And, Rachel, did you experience post-traumatic stress when you came back from there?
1: No. No, I didn't. No. Not. I do know people who who did. And again, I consider myself lucky. I did experience odd moments where you react to things differently, but it wasn't post-traumatic stress. I felt it's weird because there you're you've got your rifle with you 24/7. Like you sleep mm. with it right there, and you're mm. always with people, lots of people. And so, I felt really uncomfortable when I was at home alone and and on my own. That was just uncomfortable and odd. You'd react differently if fireworks went off. You know, they definitely sound like explosions and bombs. Mm. And there was a moment in my office at work and there were four of us in there and some builders must have dropped maybe some scaffolding outside and it really echoed. And it... It sounded to me like a bomb going off and all of my colleagues got up to look out the window and I just said, don't be stupid, get down. And it it was just, there's no bomb going off at the university, you know, but so no, I definitely didn't have post-traumatic stress, but you do, your mind goes to different places with with those things for for quite a a while, not anymore, not anymore. And would you go again? I thought about going again pretty soon after I got back and I, I... I don't know why, cause it wasn't, it wasn't fun and it wasn't enjoyable, but I did feel like I sort of had done something worthwhile, I think. Mm. But for me, if I'd started, that took me best part of a year out of my PhD and I had to come back and finish that and, and I, I wanted a career. So to me, if I'd started taking other chunks out of my career, then I, I didn't know how that was going. So I valued my career over doing that. Mm you know, if someone had twisted my arm or if they'd really needed me, I would have, I think the time's passed now. And I miss my military colleagues and some of my good friends. But again, it's a little bit like my rugby team. If you go back to those things, it's not what you remembered and it's not the same. So it's sometimes nice to leave those things where they are.
0: But, yeah, mm. it's almost like I think I think about that. I used to do it as a new mum. Mm. Like I'd look at photos of before I was a mum, and I'd get so sad and be mm. like, I want to go back to those days, but those days are gone. Yeah. You know, it's a new chapter. We've grown since then. We are not the same person that we were back then. Mm-hmm. So the experience would be completely different. Yeah. And
1: how did you go from your PhD to teaching? Oh. That's a big change. <laughs> it is. It is. So I went. Are the sh- but like whistle-stop tours. So I came back from Iraq, I finished my PhD and then I looked for a postdoc and opportunities were up internationally. So I ended up taking a postdoc in Canada working on HIV and that was actually split between some time in Kenya, in Nairobi, which was amazing. But yes. working with sex workers who are classified as resistant to HIV, fascinating, really amazing work. Did you just say classified as resistant to HIV? What yeah. do you mean by that? Well, they're epidemiologically resistant you know what the proportion of people in the population who are HIV positive is you know these ladies are having unprotected sex you know how many clients per day they have so you can calculate when they should become HIV positive by and there are some that for many, many years, continue to be HIV negative despite all odds, I guess. Wow. About five to 10% of this population. That's a podcast for another day, Ali. I was talk thinking, about I was it. like, have I
0: this is, maybe we'll record this whole thing. <laughs> yeah.
1: But amazing work. But so I was doing that and I, I met my husband in Canada, and for a whole range of reasons, we, Needed to move to live together, and so of course the obvious thing is to move continents. And I moved to Australia, of course. Yes, Sorry. <laughs> move to the Go- don't do
0: anything in halves.
1: No. <laughs> <laughs> so we've heard we moved to the Gold Coast, and I started working at Griffith there, doing another postdoc. So still in research, but anyone who's in academia knows that the. Grant cycle, you know, apply for your grant, get knocked back, maybe get two years funding, have to apply for another one. It's just too much. And I, so I made the decision after another four years working as a postdoc in Australia that I was going to move into teaching. So I had a year where I did my graduate diploma on one Griffith campus and I was lecturing on another Griffith campus and started teaching physics and chemistry. And I actually I tell everyone this if they ask me but I actually genuinely didn't know if I liked working with young people when I when I decided to start teaching but thank goodness as soon as I got in the classroom I was like oh, this is the best it, it's yeah. great yeah So I was really, really nervous about that because that's a real leap of faith. And what if I hadn't liked it? But yes, I did. I loved it.
0: And then also being able to really make a career of teaching as well. You Mm. know, now
1: you're in a principal role. How is that different for you from teaching? It is. And I think it's sad to be out of the class. I love being in the classroom because what Mm. I love about being in a school is the time I spend with young people. But I do still, I do teach a class. I have an advisor group and- I get out and about and get involved with sports and as much as possible. So I still have that. And I think there's a a place for that as a principal these days. I don't think people expect you to be locked away in your office. I think people, yeah. the students like it and people like that. So I try that. But uh, for me, it's the being a principal gives you the opportunity to make a difference for a wider range of students and more students and to have that influence over a bigger group. And Mm. that's it for me, really. I think the draw to be able to do that was stronger than the draw to stay stay in the classroom so that I could just be with the students the whole time.
0: And I really understand that because that's part of the podcast as well. How do I reach more people? And when we first started the podcast, it was like, if this can help one person. But now I'm seeing, I got a message from someone overseas this morning saying, I've never met them. And they're like, listen to you. And I was like, wow, this, this can have a bigger impact and we can help more people. So I think you do get to that stage in your career where you're like, if I can be doing what I'm doing on a bigger scale, then we can have a bigger impact, which will have a bigger ripple effect, which will really impact lives you know, for the next generation. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Is there anything, Rachel, that I haven't asked you today, particularly around Iraq or any messages that you want to say to the people that are listening, because you've had a wealth of experience, more than many, many people. And with that kind of experience come some fabulous life lessons.
1: Look, I think one of the, Things people can say, Oh, you can't do that, or you shouldn't do that, or do you really think you can do that to you an awful lot? And the reason I've done so many different things, apart from loving a challenge, um, as you do, Ali, is that I I haven't, and I think it must have come from my parents, is um, I haven't listened to people when they've said no, or do you think that's a good idea? I've just gone for what I wanted. And I haven't got everything that I challenged myself to do or to achieve by any means, but I have done some amazing things. And that's because if I've really wanted something or thought I wanted to have a go, I've just gone for it. And I really, and this is really what I try to get across to young people, because I think it's so important. If you think you want to do this, if this is your passion, if this is what you want to have a go at, have a go. Because the worst thing that can happen is that, that, yeah, it doesn't work out and you do something different. But Please just have a go and find the right people along the way and there'll be different people and they take a while to collect who'll support you and be your cheerleaders or your good sounding boards, the ones that when you're having a rubbish day or you think something's gone awry, you can either have a bit of a whinge to them or they'll tell you that you're being an idiot or or whatever it is. But So have a go at what you want and find your support crew, your cheerleaders, your mentors, your coaches and your straight talkers because they're really important. It sounds like I've done a lot of things on my own, but all of those have come from having wonderful people supporting me or when I've said, I can't, I don't know if I can do this, they've gone, that's ridiculous. Of course you can. And that's a wonderful thing.
0: And I really love that you said, and I want to highlight that, that you didn't achieve every challenge you set out to achieve because we can listen to your story and it can sound like you have, right? Yeah. And I think that's an important message for people to hear. Mm.
1: Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I could, I could list a number of things that have been goals that I, I, I really wanted, I desperately wanted, and I was desperately disappointed when I didn't get them. So, you know, I sulked and cried and was angry or whatever for a short or a long period of time and went for a run or ate a tub of ice cream and, and whatever it was to sort of wallow in that self-pity and then, got myself together and thought okay well what am I going to do instead and made a plan b and yeah allow yourself to be really disappointed because it is but then go okay well that's done let's let what what's next and, and, get on and that, that,
0: that step just there of like okay now what am I going to do or okay you've had your time let's get that's yeah. an important step like that language if we listen to that language it's giving yourself permission to be upset or grieve, but then it's also stepping up to the plate and internally saying inside your head or externally saying it out loud, what am I going to do now? Yep. Or, okay, now it's my opportunity to do, or how am I going to pivot? Or what is next? Mm-hmm. You know, if you don't have that conversation with yourself, you will stay in that space. Yeah. Mm. And I love to finish the podcast with the question of who is someone in your world or something in your world that truly makes you belly laugh? I mean, like where your teachers can hear you
1: laughing all the way down the hallway. <laughs> Actually, my husband can. My, my husband can make me laugh like, like no one else. And he can do it. He knows what will make me laugh at a, at a moment's notice. And I think that's just wonderful. So in terms of who's here, that's definitely him. But in terms of the the group of, I mean, the group of friends that I will never stop laughing with are my my rugby girls back from St. Mary's Old Boys Ladies in Bristol in, in England. And none of us are playing anymore. But when we get together, it's just you laugh so much you hurt it's absolutely (laughs) ridiculous um so that that's it (laughs) we'll have to give them this podcast because you've talked so
0: fondly of them throughout the whole podcast i think that they would really appreciate that you know (laughs) often people don't realize you know how much they've influenced you along the way Mm -hmm. oh thank you so much there were so many things that we (laughs) talked about during that interview i i wasn't sure how much we would get through but we actually got through a lot more than i thought we would and
1: thank you for your time You're very welcome, Ali. I shouldn't have been nervous. I had a lovely chat and, yeah, really, really nice. Thank you very much for having me. That was a great combo. It always fascinates me to listen to how others
0: manage different life experiences. One takeaway from this episode for me was to change perfection for excellence and that everyone misses shots that they take. It's okay to feel and then accept And then have the conversation with yourself about what's next or where to now. I hope you all took something away from this episode like I did. Hope everyone has a fabulous week and I'll see you all next time.